Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Impossible Podcast. Today's episode is with Joe Buckner. He's the founder of Beautifully Savage, a boxing gym out of Fort Collins, Colorado, and he has one hell of an inspiring story for you guys today. One of my favorite parts about this podcast is being able to sit down with someone and just hear their stories, hear the ups and downs, and hear the low parts and figure out how these people keep going even when things seem really, really, really bleak. Joe's story is really awesome. I don't want to ruin it, so I'm not going to give you too much of a preview, but suffice it to say that it has a lot of ups and a lot of downs, and it's awesome. The whole time I was talking to Joe, I was just nodding my head, and I wish we could have had a a longer chat, so we're definitely going to do it again. So you guys are in for a treat today. But before we get into the podcast, a couple housekeeping announcements to take care of. If you guys want to support the show, go ahead on over to impossiblegear.com and pick up your Impossible shirt. It's your daily reminder to push your limits and do something impossible. If you guys are going to be doing something uncomfortable and getting outside your comfort zone this year, you better be wearing something comfortable while you're doing it. So check it out at impossiblegear.com. You get an Impossible shirt. We have uh, some of the sweat-activated Impossible shirts are in stock now, too. So you can check those out as well. Everything's at impossiblegear.com. We've got some other accessories and some more stuff coming up this spring. So check it out and support the show and support yourself with an Impossible shirt. Also, if you guys want to become better athletes, you want to get stronger, you want to get faster, you know where I'm going with this. Check out movewellapp.com. 10-minute mobility routines designed to help you get stronger, get faster, and push yourself. You guys have heard me say that there's no such thing as overtraining, just under recovery, and MoveWell makes it super simple for you to do that. Uh, I've got a ton of stuff coming up with MoveWell in 2019, so check it out, get on board, and you can download the app for free at MoveWellApp.com. Check it out. If you guys want to stay up to date with everything on Impossible, check out ImpossibleHQ.com slash join, where you can get on the email list and you can stay up to date with stuff as it's happening on the site and behind the scenes, the stuff that you don't hear on the podcast. So check that out at impossiblehq.com. Also, if you guys want to stay up to date on the social media stuff with me, you can check me out at at Joel Runyon on Instagram and Twitter. And you can check out Impossible HQ at Impossible HQ on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All right, guys. So that's it for announcements. Let me get into my interview with Joe Buckner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Impossible Podcast. Today's show, I have Joe Buckner. He's a dealer of hope. He's the founder of Beautifully Savage Gym in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. And his tagline is, fighting solves everything. He's got a great story, and I'm excited to have him on the podcast. Joe, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. Awesome. So uh, my friend Nikki sent me your name when I was driving through town, and uh, I looked your story up, and it was really incredible. And I Love you just to share, you know, a quick background on who you are and how you got started, and we can kind of go from there. Yeah, well, I appreciate Nikki for thinking of me and thinking my story was interesting, and I appreciate you also agreeing to that. I'm just a local boy from Fort Collins, Colorado. You know, used to go to Poudre High School. Was a four sport athlete at Poudre High School. 
went to college, played three years of college football, and then started a career in sales, decided that wasn't good enough. So I made some poor choices that I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit. And then repaired my life and then went through uh, another rough period that I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit. And then in three years time, I went from a rough period to a great period to being an entrepreneur and now getting to do cool stuff like talk to people like you. Yeah. So let's talk about like that. You know, you started off with sports and, you know, what was the just something you gravitated towards initially? And then how did that like evolve into, you know, the uh, one of the things I like to get into is the difficult, hard challenges. So you found yourself in a couple of those. What happened with the sports there? And then like, you know, what happened after that? Sports was just something that came natural. The first time I touched football, I ran it back for a touchdown, right? You're like, I can't give this up now. I was one of those kids, like the first time I played basketball, I was an all-star. Like it just came natural to me. And it was my equalizer because growing up very poor in a place like Fort Collins, like Fort Collins is a place where people do pretty well. So knowing that we weren't one of those families, we're always kind of 30 cents away from a quarter, too much month at the end of the money kind of families. Sports was my equalizer. It was how I felt good about myself. And it was um, the thing they carried me. And I knew it was what would get me into college. And it did. And then one day it went away. The light stopped shining. So you did three years of college? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then the fourth year? And well, I, my daughter was born. Okay. And I come from a very traditional, you can't tell, but I'm half Mexican. I don't know my father at all. My mother's very Mexican. And the feeling around home was, well, why are you at school playing a game when your child is at home? Because nobody would really gone to college in my family before. So it didn't equate why aren't you here with your kid? Why are you at school? And so I came home. Yeah. What happened uh, when you came home? I just started working. I didn't have a plan. Like a lot of people, I had zero plan. I was just going to work until I died. It's cool that we live in the information age now where people understand the barrier to entry isn't that high if you want to become an entrepreneur or create something. But in the 90s, yeah, what year was this? This was in 1997. Okay. So, you know, you're talking about in the 90s, it wasn't that common to understand that. So you think, well, I have to be super wealthy to start a business or whatever, so I'm just going to work. And if I do a good enough job, maybe I'll get a raise every few years, and then one day I'm going to die. Right? That's the plan. <laughs> but I think that there's also a certain segment of people that always have this yearning inside of them, like, this can't be it right? There's no way that this is it. And I was just one of those people. So I was always kind of looking for what more there was. It's funny because that's basically my story is where I graduated from college and did basketball for how many years, a couple of years in college, low level, and did track for a couple of years through Javelin and then finished school. And I'm like, you know, middle of 2009, recession hits, like nothing's happening. I'm not getting, I'm not even getting hired. So I started applying to Starbucks, couldn't even get into there. But, and then you just kind of have this void. And so what happened with that void? You, you, you got a job and then you said some other things happened. You know, I got a job in sales and sales sort of filled that void because you still get to keep score, right? Like who's the best salesperson? The numbers, right? Men lie, women lie, numbers don't, right? You can say you're the best, but numbers. So you still get to keep score. And I gravitated to sales because people is really my passion. I've never said that I was like the greatest salesperson, but I'm passionate about people and helping them get what they want. And I think that all great salespeople have that in them. They understand that they're serving more than they're selling. And so sales just was a good fit for me. And I started in retail sales. I used to work at um, American Furniture Warehouse, which was great, you know, made some money there. That was a probably a place I could have worked until I was 50. It's funny. I haven't worked there since 
I want to say 2000 or so. And some of the same people still work there oh, on wow. the sales floor, right? Wow. You get to see like an alternate life right there. Yeah. yeah. And I never wanted to be that. Someone, one of my mentors said to me once, go to your job and look at someone that's been doing the exact job you've been doing for 10 years longer than you, because that's going to be you in 10 years. And I was like, no way, no chance. <laughs> I will go there sometimes like, shocked that they're still there. Because I would have at least tried to bust my way through like a promotion or, you know, go to a different company and be like, hey, this is what I know. Hire me. I just couldn't do the same thing over and over and over again for day after day, year after year. It's funny to like take some of those heuristics and just apply them to like critical thinking about your job or your career path. It's like, look at your manager. Do you want to be your manager in three to five or 10 years? If not, then what are you doing? You know, what's your plan long term? Or the other one that I like is everybody saves up all their money for retirement and they're going to retire one day. It's like, I think Tim Ferriss said this some, at one point. He's like, if retirement's so great, why don't take like a mini retirement right now and see if you like it and figure out what you'd be doing during it. And you could test it out and see if like these big scripts that are laid out for everybody actually pass the test. So you're doing sales, but you're like not satisfied with it, looking to do something different. Yeah, character flaw. I'm never satisfied. Okay. I'm never satisfied. That's a, that's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, I guess it could be both, right? Yeah. Now I like to say I'm grateful, but never satisfied. Like, I'm grateful for what I have, but I'm not satisfied. Back then, I wasn't even grateful. I just wanted more, and I saw that there was people that had more and did less. But I wasn't willing to go down that path on my own. I sort of had to be led there. So um, I think you might be asking how I got into some trouble. What's the ups and downs? And like, we can get into the specifics of it if you want to get into the specifics of it. No, or, we can. No, okay. I don't mind. I share the story a lot. Yeah. So it's out there. I'm not afraid of it. And it's a big part of who I am because you mentioned impossible. And I want to come back to this later, but we live in a country that has a 75% recidivism rate. So what I've done is could be considered almost impossible. Yeah. Everybody likes to talk about the highlights. They talk about here's how I did blah, blah, blah. It's like, I always like finding out like, when people were in the crap, like when people like were like, when you're looking at the wall and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. Like that's where like the character, that's the reason I run, you know, these long races is because it puts you artificially in these places where you just have to like check your soul and figure out what you're made of. And, you know, those happen to people in all sorts of different ways throughout their life. And those stories are always the ones that grip me and force me to reconsider like, oh, what are my excuses for, for not doing whatever I can in the situation? And so uh, if you're willing to share, that'd be awesome. Yeah, of course. No, I was selling furniture. I made a decent living for a 25-year-old kid, you know, four or $5,000 a month. It's not going to make you rich, but it'll get your teeth fixed, right? Like <laughs> some of my, my friends say from the South. But I just saw like people that I knew that had brand new cars. They had houses and they didn't work like I worked. They weren't working every holiday and every weekend. And I was frustrated. I wanted the inadvertent quotes, American dream. And I just didn't think I was going to get it selling couches. And I believe that the universe always wants to say yes. Whatever you're asking for, it's going to say yes. And I wanted a chance to do less and make more. And so one day a guy at work came up to me and said, and God, I couldn't make this up. Hey, Joe, you're black. Do you know where I can get some drugs? That's a quote. That's an actual <laughs> quote. I'm surprised that I wasn't even offended by it, though. I just took it as a joke. And uh, I didn't know where, but I knew. It was a serious inquiry. A serious inquiry. Yeah. He, yeah, he wanted ecstasy. And I was the most L7 square dude at the time. I probably drank twice a year. 
I was just, you know, work, try to figure out how to make money, take care of my family. Pretty nerdy dude. I still am pretty nerdy dude. But I knew a kid that smoked weed. I'm like, well, weed's drug. <laughs> Maybe he knows. So I called him up and he was able to help the guy out. And I made, you know, a few hundred bucks on my lunch break. And I just thought, this is a lot cooler than the cheeseburger I normally have for lunch, right? Like making $200 on your lunch break is a lot cooler than going to the charcoal broiler and eating a cheeseburger and fries. So a few days later, he asked again. And then a week or two later, he had a friend that needed a large quantity. And before you knew it, I was an ecstasy dealer. And those earnings were far exceeding what I was making selling couches. So I never went back to work. On Columbus Day, I just decided I wasn't going to work on Columbus Day. It was supposed to be my day off, and I never went back. The next time I went back there, I went to purchase something. <laughs> and uh, that led me down the path for roughly three and a half years of gradually becoming a bigger player in that game. I've always been hardworking and ambitious, I was just working in the wrong, I was working in an antisocial environment, you know, something that was against the law, but I wanted to be the best at it. And I didn't want to be a guy that people were calling at three in the morning because they had $20 in their pocket. I wanted to be the guy taking care of that guy so I could still have a regular life. So I saw it as a business and that's, you know, my brother and I, we turned it into a really, really profitable business. (laughs) Unfortunately, there's no retirement plan for that. The retirement plan is jail, dead. That's pretty much it. And we both ended up in number one. So what happened there? Is it just it just all came crashing down? Did you feel it like happening or was it just like kind of out of the blue one day? Well, it's just like in the movies, right? You have the bad guys, they have their job, and you have the good guys, and they have their job. And then the good guys eventually catch one of the bad guys who's willing to tell them the other bad guys. And so that's how it all comes down. And so someone that we knew got themselves into some trouble and that started a year long investigation into us. And on January 3rd, 2003, I was pulled over driving. I thought I was okay. I had an expired driver's license though, which I was not aware of. And I'd forgotten that there was a bunch of marijuana in the trunk of my car, a trash bag filled with pounds and pounds of marijuana that I was supposed to drop off earlier, but I decided to take a nap instead. So needless to say, I was watching the national championship game in jail. (laughs) And then a little bit later, my little brother walked in and I thought, okay, the game's completely changed now. We're caught. So what happened there? How long did you have to, to spend? I was just there for the weekend. I was there for the weekend. I bonded out. My brother, unfortunately, never got the chance to bond out. And, I didn't see him again for six years after that. Yeah. Yeah. So he ended up getting an 18 year sentence from that. And because we were co-defendants, we weren't allowed to communicate. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like my baby brother. So one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, and I tell people to this day, was when they called my name, they're like, hey, you're bonded out. And I have to walk out and leave my little brother in there. And there's nothing I can do. You know, I can't put up money to get him out. Like there's literally nothing. They won't let him bond out. They just wouldn't yeah. didn't even give him a number. No, no, he didn't have the opportunity because, you know, he was on some supervision already. So, and he violated that. So he didn't have that option. And then I didn't see him again for six years. So. Okay. Wow. Yeah. 
And then did you go to trial? And So my case carried on for two years. And um, in September of 2015, no, 2005, geez, yeah. September 15, <laughs> 2005, yeah, 12 years, I was sentenced to five years in the Department of Corrections. But I had a recommendation for a boot camp program for first-time nonviolent offenders. And that recommendation changed my life, like literally the whole trajectory of my life. Okay, why? First of all, the program wasn't guaranteed. You have to go through a battery of tests, psychological tests, physical tests. You have to be under a certain age. You have to have no violent crimes in your past. Like, it's tough to get into. And then the program had a 60% failure rate. So there was no guarantee that I was going to get in. It's based on the Army's boot camp, and it was run by current and ex-military staff, so Marines, Army, Air Force guys. It was hard. I'd never been held accountable in my life, though, ever. When you grow up young, talented, the world's kind of your oyster, and you can do whatever you want to do, right? And... You operate sort of with impunity, not realizing that there's a ripple effect to the things you're doing. I used to tell people, like, my life as a young man was akin to imagine someone driving down the road and they look in their rearview mirror and there's like, you know, the fire hydrants are spraying water. There's cars crashed, burned up and everything. And they look in the rearview mirror and they go, man, those people are really bad at driving. <laughs> not realizing that they're the one causing all this destruction, right? Because they just keep moving forward. So that's, that's who I was. And the first day that we were there, um, zero day is what they call it. The point is for them to just get you mentally and physically exhausted. And so at the end of that, we're standing there online and one of the drill instructors is walking up and down. And he says, how many of you think you're a man? Well, we're street guys. So every one of us raises our hand. Like, oh, I'm a man. He said, put your hands down. He said, how many of you have children? Literally almost every guy of 46 guys raises their hands. Every one of you has children that are at home being taken care of by their mother, your mother, someone else other than you. So how could you call yourself a man? Put your hands down. And that was the first time I'd ever really had someone call me to task before. Like, and that was heavy, right? And so I thought, okay, it's perspective, right? Everything here is designed to make me better so I don't come back to this place. So why don't I just lean in? Even when you're, again, inadvertent quotes, being in trouble, you're they're trashing you. You're just exercising. Burpees, push-ups, high knees. Okay, great. I'm exercising. There's worse things than exercising, right? Exactly. So I just changed the way I looked at things, and I really took advantage of the opportunity to learn. And that first phase was all about you know, breaking us down and making us understand if one person does something, it has a ripple effect. So if Steve at the end scratched his nose and we we're supposed to be standing still in line, everybody got to pay for it. So you learn, right? Like It's not just me. Other people are counting on me. You know, the attention to detail. All your toiletries need to be two fingers apart. Your clothes need to be folded Bible size. Like your bed needs to be made to inspection ready status every single morning. And you have that much time to do it, right? I'd never experienced anything like that in my life to where I was like, okay, I have to pay attention. These things really matter. The devil's in the details, right? Like how I carry myself, how I do even fold my clothes, it matters because it carries over into the rest of my life. Second phase was about building us back up, you know, reminding us that, yeah, you're here, but you don't have to end up here. And then the third phase, they kind of let you go on your own and they watch you be like, okay, are you ready or not? 
What do, you, what do you mean go on your own? Let you out or? No. So they just kind of don't monitor you as closely, but they're still on you. But there's other great things that are happening. Like if you don't want the crap rubber pillow and you want a real pillow, great. We're going to go in the gym and we're going to trash for it. And whoever makes it through gets a real pillow. If you don't want the prison toothpaste, if you want some Colgate, we're going to trash for it. You're going to earn it. You're going to earn every single little thing. But those lessons carried over with me when I walked out of that place. And I knew I was never going to go back there ever again. Right. So it was the best experience of my life, the most rewarding experience of my life. It sucks that I had to go there to do it. But sometimes you have to. Right. You have to go like to the depths to like almost drowning. Be like, oh, man, I better learn how to swim. Were there any points where you wanted to give up? First day I wanted to give up. We were in Buena Vista, Colorado. It was, I think, January 6th. I bet you it was maybe five or six degrees outside, and we're running on and off this bus, and we're bear crawling through a pit of dirt and snow. Brand new gloves. I read holes in them. My hands are bleeding. I remember this one point I was laying on the ground. My face was in the dirt, and I was like, I'd rather go to jail. I'd rather go to jail. Honestly, I would. In a picture, like, my kids flashed in my head. And I remember telling them, I will do whatever I have to do to come home as soon as possible because I already had two kids at the time. And after that, I was like, I wouldn't quit this. for. There's nothing they could do to make me quit this. Yeah. Nothing. It's interesting. I've talked to a couple different SEALs and a bunch of military guys. And it's interesting to see the psychology of people who make it through those types of events versus the ones that don't. And often, it's the people who don't give themselves a choice. You know, I talked to one guy, he's, I said, you know, he was going through Hell Week and he was the command master chief of all of Coronado Island in uh, San Diego. And uh, he said something like, I was either going to finish Hell Week or I was going to die. I wasn't going to go back to Indiana. You know, like that was his like mindset. And it's interesting when you're like, oh, well, I could, you know, if you still have options, it almost makes it harder to like make it through those situations. And when you just sit and you say like, I told my kids I'd do it and I have to come through for that. That's a pretty good motivator. Like do some more burpees. Yeah. Well, do whatever they tell you to do. Yeah. Right. Within reason, you know, do whatever they tell you to do because you have people counting on you. Yeah. Right. And you let them down once already. So don't do it again. That's an interesting message too, because one of the things that, you know, everybody always talks about getting more freedom, more right. Like I've had a guy on here, Jordan Peterson in the past, and he's talked about, everybody talks about freedom rights and where it really comes down to is taking on more responsibility. And when you take that responsibility on all of a sudden, like your options open up, but it's because you've taken that burden on yourself. So you go through that program, changes your life. You walk out a whole different mindset. Um, how many, how many years were you in? Uh, I was only gone for 10 months. Okay. Yeah. The program was a hundred days. Your original sentence was? My original sentence was five years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the benefits of completing the program, mind you, we started with 46 of us, only 14 finished. I was going to ask that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's hard. And it's hard for, again, guys who've never had to be told what to do before, yeah. right? To be told to stand on the line and just stare straight ahead at the other dude and don't talk for 30 minutes and don't touch your face. Don't move. Nothing. Just stand there. Right. It's challenging. It's challenging to get told that you have to eat your whole dinner in a push-up position because Jimmy wouldn't stop talking on the line. So you have to eat in the push-up position, and they still want you squaring your meals off in that push-up position, right? Some guys just aren't built to make it. The mindset that you were just talking about, too, you know, I think some people aren't willing to embrace the suck, right? Yeah. Right? That's one of my phrases. Yeah, right? Like, like that, so yeah. when you're running a triathlon, there's parts that suck. 
and you're like, I actually don't think I want to be doing this anymore, but I'm going to keep going. Right. So in the program, a lot of guys just won't embrace the suck. So 14 of us finished, but that also gives you a sense of pride to be like, look how many quit. Some of them voluntarily quit. Some of them got kicked out. Some voluntarily quit. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. So for me, making it through that program was an opportunity to get my life back because one of the options when you graduate is your attorney can put in a request to have your sentence reconsidered. So interestingly enough, my attorney had put in my request before I completed the program. When I was in the first phase, he put in my request because he was his thought process was this is a first time offender. This is a guy that went to college. Like, yeah, he made some poor choices, but come on, five years in prison. And the request got denied. And I think it was one of those tests from the universe. Like, okay, you're here pretending to be in gratitude for the opportunity. And, you know, I used to say this thing. When you're locked up, you hear guys praying all the time, like, just get me out of here. Like, I'll do anything, whatever, whatever. And I never asked that once. I never asked that. My ask was the same every time. When I'm the kind of man that will never come back to this place, that's when I want to go home. If it's in five years, I'll go in five years. If it's in 10 months, 12 months, that's when. But I don't want to go home a minute earlier than that because I'm never coming back here ever again. That's a hard like mindset to even come up with, much less embrace. Yeah, but you see guys in there that it's their sixth time being sent to yeah. prison. That you know, I have an uncle that spent his whole adult life in prison. What made you be able to do that? Did you formulate that? Was it just like the picture of your kids in the back of your head? It was a conversation that I had with a gentleman in a place called DRDC. It's a maximum security prison in Denver that everyone goes to. And it's for classification. They put you in 23-hour-a-day lockdown and they watch you. And so, you know, prior to going there, I was in a place called Park County, which is called Gladiator School. And they call it that for a reason. Basically, the inmates run the asylum and only the strong survive. So... A gentleman pulled me aside when I was there getting ready to go to DRDC, and he says, uh, I need to talk with you. He's an old-timer. I said, okay. He says, uh, have a seat. He said, you're different. I was feeling pretty crappy about myself at the time, so I wasn't really trying to hear that. I said, I don't think so, man. I'm not. He says, no, no, no. Like, you're different. Like, you're always reading and writing and exercising and you don't really like mess around down here with people playing games. He says, I've been in prison on and off for probably 15 years. I can tell when someone belongs here and when they don't and you're different. At this point, I'm like, great. Okay, fine. He says, what do you have on? I roll my eyes. I'm being respectful because you have to respect these guys. Think like Morgan Freeman's character in Shawshank, right? You respect them. I said, green jumpsuit. He's like, yeah, just like everybody else. He said, what does it say on it? 128319. He says, you don't even have your name on your shirt anymore. They've taken your identity. They've taken your sense of self. You look just like everybody else, and now you're nothing but a number. The only thing they haven't taken from you is your ability to choose. So this goes two ways. People come in here. They get around other people that did what they did. And they walk out of here thinking they're going to be better at the thing that got them sent in here. And you might be for a little while, and then I'll see you back here. Or you use this time to change and decide that you're never going to come back to this place. 
And once he said that, I was like, okay, perspective, right? Perspective. How many adults that have children get an opportunity to take, whether it's one year, two years, three years, four years, five years, to just become better, right? I don't have to go to work every day. I don't have, and yeah, it sucks, but what a cool opportunity to just become better because obviously something's broken. If I'm in prison, something's off, right? So I just have this time to become better. And so that's what I looked at it as. And so that's where that prayer came from was like, I don't want to go home until I'm better because if I'm not better, I'll come back and I'll keep coming back and I'll keep coming back again. 75% of people that go to prison are back within three years in this country. It's insane. Have you read Man's Search for Meaning? I have not. Uh, It's by Viktor Frankl. He's a... I think a psychologist in the Holocaust concentration camps. And he's basically figuring out how people lasted through such terrible stuff. Basically the the takeaway from it is you have to find redemption in the suffering. And it's like, you could just sit there and just feel bad for yourself and be like, this is not fair. I know all these people in the, you know, we're doing what I did, didn't get caught, whatever. Or you just say like, this is the situation. Yeah. (laughs) This is where I'm at. And I can either get pissed about it or I can do something about it. Right. That's cool. I feel like we suffer more when we want to argue with our reality. Ooh, that's right? good. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, oh, I'm not going to accept this as it is. I'm just going to fight it, fight it, fight it. And it's like, you're still going to be locked up yeah. in a pod with 75 other dudes. Yeah. So accept it or don't. Yeah. Doesn't like matter. reality is like against me or whatever. Yeah. Like, you're just like, yeah. actually, it just is and you need to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. I just decided I was never going back there ever. I was not going to be a statistic. And so... That was my prayer. When I'm the kind of man that will never come back here because I've taken shortcuts my whole life. I've cheated my whole life. I've never given my all to anything my whole life. When I'm not that dude anymore, I want to go home. And so, again, grace of God, my attorney had put in the request in my first month. I was in boot camp and it got denied. And I remember getting the letter and reading, okay, I'm going to settle in. Obviously, I need to be here. I have work to do still. So again, I was setting that kind of energy out there into the universe, like, I'm here to do the work, all the work, for the whole time, right? Would I have loved to go home? Sure. I probably would have come back very soon. So I go through the program, and then my attorney puts in another request for me to be reconsidered because I graduated. And once you graduate, they automatically have to at least look at your case, And it got granted, but they didn't say when I was going to be going home. So it was like, that's cool, but I still could be here for another year, two years. Who knows? And ironically, I'd set a goal for myself that I had no freaking control over that I wanted to be home by my daughter's birthday. I just outrageously, again, you talk about impossible, right? April 12th, 2006, I'm going to be home. I wasn't home. By April 12, 2006. But I did get called down to the DI's office April 12, 2006, and I got asked the question, Graduate Buckner, are you ready to go home? And I said, don't play games with me, man. That's not funny. I'm not going anywhere for a while. They said, no, your, your request for reconsideration was granted. They're sending you to a halfway house. You're leaving tonight. And so I just thought, man, how cool is that? How cool is that, right? And so I did. I came home, went to a halfway house, and I just crushed it. I crushed it from that point forward. 
So what was next then? Like you got out and I got out and I realized that life is very hard for a convicted felon. It's hard to get a job. It's hard to get a place to live. So I lived in a halfway house. I completed the halfway house program in four and a half months, which is the fastest time that anyone can complete it because you have to save up a certain amount of money so you can move out on your own. You have to be current on your fines. You have to be working. You have to be current on your rent to the halfway house. But I did it because I was determined. I, I like to say that the most successful people are unusually determined. It doesn't even make sense sometimes, right? I'm going to shoot a car into space. Yeah, and exactly. everyone's like, yeah. that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And then you do it, right? Yeah. With no regard for how anyone else thinks or what they say. You're just like, I'm, I said I'm going to do it, so I do it, right? So I got two $7 an hour jobs. One was at Gibbs Bagels, and one was at a place called DP Doe. And I used to walk 14 miles every day between these two $7 an hour jobs, understanding that every morning that I woke up at 2 a.m. to walk to Gibbs to be there by 4 to open up the place, it's just another morning away, like one step further from going back to prison. You know, I'd walk in gratitude, like, do I want to be walking in the snow at 2.30 in the morning? No. Do I want to be in prison? Hell no. <laughs> so I'll gladly do it, yeah. right? You got to find the thing that's worse than the, the, <laughs> yeah. the crap that you're in Yeah. to run away from. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what I did. I walked every day. And one of the things when I get to talk with other people that are kind of going through what I go through, like whether it's a group of troubled teens or other gentlemen or women, is I just try to be raw and be real with them and say, it's going to suck. You have to know that. No one's going to hire you to be the CEO of anything right away. But if you keep showing up and you keep proving yourself, eventually better opportunities will show up for you. One of my favorite concepts is going after the difficult things because one, there's less competition sometimes there. Like, you know, you have 46 guys go through that program and could have changed their lives and 30 of them dropped out. People aren't willing to do it. And when you don't sugarcoat it and you say, it's going to suck, it's going to be horrible. Like, you're going to hate like a lot of it. You're going to be questioning yourself the whole time. But if you sign up for that and you, you know that going in, then it, everything becomes easier because you don't have to spend so much time wondering, oh, why is this so hard? Well, it's supposed to be hard. Well, and if you own your crap too, right? Like my stance was nobody else put me here. I put myself here. So nobody owes me anything. Even my friend who turned me down for a job as a fry cook at his restaurant because he said, I can't have someone like you working here. He didn't owe me anything. So I didn't even take a minute being angry. I was like, cool. Thanks for the opportunity to apply. I'll find a job somewhere else. Nobody owes you anything. And I think if more people realized that, they'd get along a lot better. <laughs> So, so you, you, you get out of jail, you're doing these two $7 an hour jobs. Yeah. You know, it's arguably worse than selling furniture. It's like, much dang worse. it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> didn't say this coming. So I know you have a hard stop here coming up, but, uh, oh yeah, yeah, we um, got time. let's get in a little bit like, okay, how did that transition to what you're doing now with the boxing gym? Like, how'd you get into that? And then I want to talk about the fighting quote cause yeah. uh, I like it. <laughs> so from there again, my, my thing was always, I'm just going to show up. And someone's going to see me and say, I know you don't want to be making bagel sandwiches, right? Like there's another opportunity. So I went to work at a place called Aaron's, which is the largest rent to own company in the world. And again, I just, I just saw an opportunity. All I kept seeing was opportunities. And for me, my stance has always been, I just need someone to see me. If they see me, they'll see the value. They'll see how I work. They'll see what I bring, but they have to see me. I mean, I used to tell my boss all the time, 
I don't want to call them. I need to go in because I'm better when I'm in front of people. They have to see me, right? So I went to Aaron's and I quickly went, I saw a sign that said, we promote within 12 months. Our general managers make 75 to $100,000 a year. I walked right inside. I said, I want whatever job you have. And the guy says, we have a $9 an hour job, customer service. You'll make calls and make coffee and vacuum. Do you want that job? I said, absolutely. <laughs> I want that job. And I remember I interviewed with the regional manager and I told him, this is who I am. This is where I was at. I'm currently just got a halfway house. I got my own apartment and I would love this job. Great. Thanks for the interview. I walk out. I call back the next day. The GM says, my boss said, if I hire you, he'll fire me. I said, cool. Can I talk to him? He says, no, you, you can't talk to him. So I called every day for three weeks. I just kept calling and showing up, calling and showing up, calling and showing up. And finally, someone quit, and they were shorthanded. And I walked in, and the guy says, jokingly, man, if only you spoke Spanish. I said, that's actually my first language. When can I start? And I started the very next day. And as it went, three weeks later, I was promoted to sales manager. So I actually took the job of the guy who hired me. Five months later, I took the general manager's job the other guy who was responsible for getting me hired to this day, that regional manager is one of my best friends in the whole wide world. His name is John Pollock. And he just inspired me and believed in me after he saw me after he saw me. Right. But he had to see me first. So I worked at Aaron's for the next six years. And then I met a woman, we decided to have a baby and we were in love and I accepted a job out of state. Cause I was like, I'm going to make a better life for our family. And then the relationship started to disintegrate really, really fast. And she wanted me and my children out of the home and being the sole provider at that time, because we really wanted her to be able to be home with our new baby that left me with nowhere to go. So I was homeless for seven months. So that's another part of the story that I don't think we talk about enough. Like the prison thing is a little sexier because like, ah, prison. But I was homeless for seven months here in, in a town where I used to star on these football fields and be on the cover of the newspaper. And like I knew people and I was homeless, sleeping in my car and sometimes scraping up enough money to sleep at the Motel 6. And, you know, a lot of mornings having to decide, OK, do I go to the Waffle House and get myself something to eat? But I actually need that eight dollars to get a room for the night. So maybe I won't eat today or maybe I will. And I just won't sleep here because I haven't eaten in a couple of days or well, I need to put gas in my car so I can go look for a job, but I also need to eat. So making those kind of decisions, you know, going to the gas station and paying for gas with change, right? Like if you want to talk about something that's humbling, go up to the King Supers at 5 PM, the gas station that's packed with people and put $2 and 89 cents in change on the counter and tell them you want to put it on pump six, right? Even during that time, though, because I'd already been through the other thing, I said, this is only temporary. I'm going to figure this out. Were you working then? or No, I okay. wasn't because I'd left my job to take the other job. Yeah. And so the other job was in Chicago. And then I obviously couldn't take it because now well, how am I going to get there? I don't have the means. I don't have anything to get there. So I was homeless. But the whole time, I'm just positive. I'm like, yeah, this sucks a little bit, but... I could not have a car. I've <laughs> Well, and eventually I didn't. I had to give it back because I couldn't pay for it. But I've been to maximum security prison. I've had to sit in a room with another man while he went to the bathroom. 
I've been in worse situations than this. Like if I have to sleep in my car, okay, I'm fine. But during that time, again, if I can just get the prayer right, I'll get the answer, right? So I used to be one of those people that prayed for success. Ah, I just want success and money and ah, let all the money fall down for the sky. I'm going to be that guy, right? I went back to the best version of me and I said, and, and I'll say this, every time I slip, I always try to become reminiscent on when I was the best version of myself, when I was walking 14 miles a day, when I was willing to do whatever it took to win. So I went back and I said, what did that guy want? He wanted an opportunity. So I changed the prayer. I wasn't worried about success anymore. I want an opportunity, but I need it to look like this. I need a salary so I know how much money I'm going to get each month so I can pay my bills. I have a sales background, so I want bonuses and commissions because I want to get paid for what I bring to the table. I need benefits because I need to go to the doctor sometimes or the dentist or what have you. And I'd like a car allowance because I need another car. So buddy of mine was actually paying me to go to a networking group for him because he didn't want to go. It was every Wednesday and he's like, I'm not doing that. (laughs) So I would go, I'd put on a suit and nobody needed to know that I was homeless. I just needed to show up and I would show up every week, look professional, sharp, engage in the group. And one day this guy stands up named Heath and he says, I need a salesperson. It's a salaried position with commissions and bonuses, a $350 a month car allowance, full benefits. And our biggest client is the Denver Broncos. I got up, I walked over, I said, I'm the guy. Three weeks later, I got the job. Took my first check, got a place, struggled mightily that first year, learning business to business sales. At about month 12, things took off. The next year I was a six plus figure earner. Two years later, I started my own business. And now again, I get to have cool conversations with people like you. Yeah. And so your business is the gym. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Beautifully Savage. Beautifully Savage Boxing Studio. What's the story behind the name? The story behind the name is actually, it's directly related to my life and everyone's life. So I wanted a name that would immediately disarm people's preconceived notions about boxing, right? To a lot of people, boxing is Sylvester Stallone getting beat to a bloody pulp in a Rocky movie or two grown men pummeling themselves in a ring. To me, boxing is beautiful when you watch two great fighters like that last Canelo Alvarez and Triple G fight. That's just two of the best fighters ever doing what they do, maneuvering around a ring. It's beautiful to watch, but it's also very savage to ball your fist up and hit someone in the face repeatedly, right? So I didn't want to call it Old Town Boxing or Fort Collins Boxing because I just thought there's going to be people that hear that word and say, no, I don't want anything to do with that. But life is also beautiful at times and sometimes it's incredibly savage one minute you're on top of the world the next minute you found that your wife's having an affair on you or your friend your best friend has cancer or you have cancer or you just lost your job of 25 years it has this interesting way of being incredibly savage at the same time which is i think why we celebrate the beautiful moments and we take pictures and we put them on instagram and facebook because like this is when life doesn't suck right We never talk about when it sucks, right? So life is also beautifully and savage. But moreover, human beings are inherently beautiful, right? We all have that in us, but we all have a little bit of savage in us. And I'm a person that believes you can't be whole human unless you're willing to embrace that you have some darkness in you. 
I think that most people feel if I even acknowledge that I have darkness in me, I'm a bad person. Oh, yes, I would love to go have 15 margaritas with you, but I can't. I can't. I'm on the PTA. And it's like, um, wrong. <laughs> Lean into that, right? Yeah. As long as you're not intentionally harming other people, because we all have darkness in us. Uh, I've heard a quote, and I'm going to screw it up now, but it's something like, just because you're incapable of like badness doesn't make you like a good man. It just makes you a useless man. <laughs> like just because you're incapable of it, like if you you have to be capable of it in order to restrain it, and that's what makes you good. I like that a yeah. lot. So that's where the name comes from. Cool. You know, what's the tagline? Fighting solves everything. Because yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it actually does. Okay. Again, when I was starting the studio, I thought, how can we get people engaged without worrying about being punched in the head or being hurt? And how can we teach them something? I started the boxing studio because people were trying to get me to become a, again, inadvertent quotes, motivational speaker, right? Oh, you got to share your story. You got to tell about it. And I was like, why? I don't want to do that. You did the TED thing. That was one of the most disheartening things I've ever done in my life. Because what I found was, just like in the TED Talks book, a lot of those people, that's their one shining moment. Like they've been waiting for this their whole life. And I just wasn't one of those people. I don't need that spotlight on me. I don't care. Right. And so I didn't want to become a speaker, but I thought, how can I impact people's lives without preaching at them? You know, like a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So I said, well, we can lock them in a room not really lock them, put them in a room with cool music and work them really hard and talk into a microphone and say things that impact their lives. So when they walk out, they're like, man, great workout. I really feel like I learned something though. I don't know what. So to go with the boxing theme, I just thought if you ask anybody who the greatest fighter of all time is, they're going to say Muhammad Ali. It's almost to a person, right? Muhammad Ali does not have the most wins of any boxer ever. He has five losses. He doesn't have the most knockouts. He doesn't have the record for anything. But people will say he's the greatest fighter because he was courageous. Even when he got knocked down, he got back up. He had the best three years of his fighting career taken from him because of his personal beliefs. And he still came back and won the heavyweight title again. Fighters understand that, right? Champions and fighters are different. And we could talk about that at some point if you want to. But... Even at that, you can go online right now and find pictures of Muhammad Ali laid flat on his back from a left hook by Joe Frazier, right? But he kept getting back up. So life is going to knock you on your back from time to time. So that's when you realize, like, what you're made of. Am I going to get up and fight or am I going to cut and run? Because there's always two types of people, right? There's fight or flight. There's people that will get up and fight. They'll ball up their fists and say, let's have at it, life. You know, you're not going to knock me down. And there's people that are going to quit. So we like to encourage people to understand that life's going to test you from time to time. And you're going to have to fight for everything that you want that matters. Nothing's going to come easy to you. So fighting solves everything. The only way you're going to get what you want in this life is if you're willing to fight for it. That person that you love, that job you want, that ability to travel, the life that you really, really want, you know. At some point, everybody has a battle to fight. It could be obesity, poverty, depression. doesn't matter. We all are going to have that dragon to slay. I hope that people choose to fight instead of give up. So that's what I try to share with them. That's a great way to end. Like, 
<laughs> if people want to find out, we first of all, we have to have you back on the podcast at some point. This is great. But uh, if people want to find out more about you, your story, and the gym, where's the best places for them to find? I'm most active on Instagram at Mr. Joe Buckner on Instagram. I have a Facebook page that I use sparingly because, like, my mom's on there. So <laughs> Instagram is the best way. And then the boxing studio is at Beautifully Savage Boxing on Instagram as well. Okay. And I'll put those links in the show notes so people can check it out. Cool, man. This is awesome. I uh, appreciate you coming out on such uh, short notice. And uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll do it again sometime soon. For sure. All right. So that's it for this week's podcast, guys. If you guys enjoyed the show, head on over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a rating, review five stars, helps us reach more people and helps us inspire people to keep pushing their limits and do something impossible. As a reminder, if you guys want to support the show in other ways, you can go head on over to impossiblegear.com. You can pick up an impossible shirt and knock something off your impossible list. When you do that, Take a photo, send it in. I'll feature you on the site, on Instagram, all over the place. And then you can go and knock off the next thing and keep the streak going. Also, check out movewellapp.com. 10-minute mobility routines designed to help you get stronger, get faster, and start moving well. I have a lot of things planned for MoveWell in the new year. So stay tuned. Get subscribed. Check it out. Do your 10 minutes of mobility a day, and you're going to become a better athlete, and you're just going to feel better throughout the day. So check it out. Movable app, the best mobility trainer out there, and we have a ton of new stuff coming up. So stay tuned. Keep an eye out for that, and check that out at movewellapp.com. Also, if you guys are not on the list at Impossible HQ, head on over to impossiblehq.com slash join, and you get on the email newsletter to keep posted with everything going on with the site, the business, and all the stuff behind the scenes that doesn't make it onto the podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, that is all I have for this week. I've got a new episode coming your way next week, same time, same place. But until then, keep pushing your limits and do something impossible. possible.